from high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. This hour, we're going to be joined by General Mike Linnington, now retired, and Daniel Green, Wounded Warrior Project, doing their soldier ride today. We'll talk about that as well as the holdup of all these promotions and elevations and superintendents uh, by Republican senators because they don't like the woke policies in the Pentagon. Andrew McCarthy standing by because uh, we want to get his take on the FBI test, uh, FBI director's testimony yesterday. So before we get to Andy, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Here we go. Senator Tim Scott shows he's a money player and suddenly has Republicans and Democrats worried. Also, No Labels is having a summit featuring legit moderates as possible candidates. Should should Joe Biden and Donald Trump be worried? Number two. This was really maddening. Uh, You know, he had more details uh, when Eric Swalwell asked him about FBI Family Day. He went on length about that. But when you deal with something that was just the subject of a 155-page report, he draws a blank. It's amazing, right? He wanted to just talk about what a good job everyone at FBI is doing. That is not the question. Republican fury and frustration on display as Christopher Wray defends the FBI that he should be fixing. Number one. Vladimir and I, we, the, I should, shouldn't be so familiar. Uh, Mr. Zelensky and I uh, talked about the kind of guarantees we could make in the meantime. Uh, Joe on stage, his message, his presence, his policy from NATO to the G7. Has he helped himself, the country? You make the call. Let's uh, begin with Andy McCarthy, uh, a Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for Southern District of New York. Andy, I was so frustrated yesterday. There weren't more details and direct quotes from the Twitter files to make this director comment on what was going on in 2020. How did you view yesterday? Well, I, I guess I'm kind of in the minority on this, Brian, because I, you know, I don't think Ray is perfect by any means, but, you know, I think he's got a very tough job. Um, it, it, it's frustrating for him because they want him to, you know, they, Comey got drummed out, uh, as he should have, by running off at the mouth about things that he either wasn't allowed to talk about under Justice Department policy or uh, you know, was was either grand jury or other kind of uh, sensitive law enforcement information. Uh, and Ray, as he pointed out yesterday, knows that he got his job precisely because of that. And now what they're asking him to do in a lot of instances is to do what Comey got fired over, which is tell people stuff that, uh, the you know, under Justice Department policy and FBI standards he's not supposed to talk about. Some of the stuff is under litigation. Some of the stuff is just, you know, sensitive law enforcement information. And I think, you know, he hasn't he hasn't come to terms, Ray hasn't, with the fact that the ground, the political ground has shifted. It used to be, you know, when I was a, a pup prosecutor, the FBI had a very good reputation. And if they went into Congress and they said, um, you know, we can't talk about that. We can't answer these questions you're asking. Uh, Congress worried that the public would think they were interfering with the investigative work of the FBI, that they might be obstructing. The FBI doesn't have that kind of reputation anymore. They've spent eight years sullying their reputation. 
and now Ray wants to take the same position that the Bureau used to take when it had a much better reputation, which is, you know, we can't comment on this or we can't comment on that. And it used to be that people would assume the FBI was doing the right thing. So even if they wouldn't tell you what they were doing, you, you at least trusted that they were playing by the rules. And now people don't feel that way anymore for very good reasons. The last eight years, the FBI's engaged in a lot of bad behavior. Uh, and, you know, Ray is just not going to be able to in this new world, he is not going to be able to get away with uh, going in there and just not giving any information. So uh, he had to own up to the fact the Richmond office was going against Catholics. They looked at it as extreme Catholics. He admitted that. Uh, so that was one real thing. And I thought we'd have more of that. I thought when you yeah. have the Twitter files that revealed exactly what was going on with the FBI pressuring Twitter to pull certain posts down. And in his opening remarks, he said, we only handle outside disinformation from other countries and other sources. So right there he was caught. He should say, I'm outraged. I'm outraged that one of my officers would be making these type of pervasive calls and demands of a private enterprise, many of much of which had nothing to do with foreign entities. These were domestic posts. Why couldn't he say that? Well, because there's a, there really is a profound legal disagreement. Now, let me just lay out before I say this, Brian, because I can already feel people throwing stuff at me. Um, I agree with you, okay? I, I think that when the FBI goes to uh, private industry or, or these, uh, you know, these big internet companies, the, the social media companies, and they suggest uh, that you know, maybe you want to have a look at this, what that implies is that, you know, we're the FBI, we can prosecute you, we can come back and, uh, you know, th- with subpoenas and make your life miserable and all that stuff. To me, that is implicitly a, a demand that they that information get suppressed. But that isn't established in law. And the FBI has longstanding uh, relationships with uh, private institutions where they get cooperation from those institutions without having to issue subpoenas uh, and without having to use legal process. And it's an ambiguous situation. To me, it looks like coercion. What Ray is saying is it's not coercion. It's the kind of thing that we've been doing forever, and there's nothing in the law that says we can't. And what Congress ought to be doing, I think, uh, other than hollering at him over this, is, you know, enact some law that says – you know, this is what the FBI is allowed to do, and this is what they're not allowed. Well, didn't to do. that just come down last weekend? We had a judge rule that uh, no more of these domestic agencies are allowed to mess with these private social media platforms. Yeah, but Brian, that's anything but settled. I mean, it's one district judge in Louisiana. They're going to challenge the case on appeal. Um, you know, the FBI. What he said yesterday was he respected the judge's opinion, but he doesn't think that all of the factual findings are right. That's obviously going to play out on appeal. But we don't want this kind of balancing to be done by one district judge. This is like Congress's job is to balance between liberty and security, and they're not doing it. You know, these guys think that their job uh, is to you know holler at Ray for six hours. And I understand people's frustration with it. I've frustrated myself with some of the lack of information. But, you know, these are the guys who can actually do something about it. Their job is not to go on cable TV at night and, and whine about how bad right, just, are. We just they don't actually, like what they're doing. I mean, I, I, you see some of the people that they – in those Twitter files that they were suppressing, shadow banning, eliminating. 
I mean, what the hell is that? I don't want them doing that. Well, of course we don't want them doing that. But why doesn't Congress pass a law that says if the FBI is going to approach a social media company or anybody who's in the business of uh, expression, uh, if they can't make a suggestion that they suppress information, they need a warrant based on probable cause, and then it would stop. But then you have to understand also the other side of the coin, which is that if are you comfortable with a situation where if the FBI gets information that that some criminal element or someone who's threatening Americans wants to exploit social media in order to get their message out, do you want to make it illegal for the FBI to do that? Um, I think that's a hard call. I, it may be that the balance is that we should make it illegal to do that, but you know we have to understand with our eyes open that's what we'd be doing. Right, but in whose judgment is it? I mean, they had former FBI agents talking to active FBI agents about what was happening on Twitter. And we only know what happened on Twitter. As you know, we've been over this over the last year. We don't know what's happening to the other social media outlets because they have not been transparent because Elon Musk hasn't bought them yet. But I want to hear you. I want to get your take on this exchange. As yep. you know, Matt Gates is reading from a uh, text message of Hunter Biden's cut 14. WhatsApp. Yeah, the WhatsApp message. Yeah. I'm sitting here with my father. I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge, that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Sounds like a shakedown, doesn't it, Director? Uh, I'm not going to get into commenting on that. You, you, you seem deeply uncurious about it, don't you? Almost suspiciously uncurious. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does not the has que- no oh, interest on. in You won't answer the question about whether or not that's a shakedown, and everybody knows why you won't answer it. Because to, ev- to the millions of people who will see this, they know it is. And your inability to acknowledge that is deeply revealing about you. And it was to a Chinese company directly associated with the Chinese government. Uh, it's hard to imagine a more impactful to the guy who turns out to be the future president. Yeah, but what do they expect Ray to say about it? You know, wait a minute. You know, when when Jim Comey got up in front of the world on on what was it, July 5th or 6th of 2016 and stated what the evidence was against Hillary Clinton and then said that she was recklessly irresponsible with the way that she uh, handled classified information, he got fired over that. And he was widely condemned for talking about investigative information against people who hadn't been charged. What, what is Ray supposed to do about that? What he said was that there's an ongoing investigation. Now, the problem here is that the FBI has spent eight years getting enmeshed in politics. Eight years ago, if an FBI director had got, come into Congress and said, I'm not going to comment on that, everybody would have said, well, of course he's not going to comment on that. It's under investigation. Now we don't trust the FBI because they've been political for eight years. And I think the problem here is the guy who's trying, maybe not as effectively as we'd all like, but trying to fix that, uh, is being blamed but for all the sins that have happened the only thing the last eight years. Andy, you make, a great, you make a great point, but I, I'll add this to it. The problem is, are you trying to fix it by not commenting on it? What about just doing an investigation on it? I mean, this is I not a new WhatsApp about, text message. This has been around forever. So how, yeah, why does it take seven it, years? Yeah, but, I, but it's, it's not the FBI's job to charge them. The Justice Department has done abusive things in connection with that case, including the sweetheart plea deal. 
There's no indication the FBI has any responsibility for that. So why didn't he comment on it? it. So why did you just say I'm not involved in that case? He is involved. The FBI is in the case, but the Justice Department decides what charges to bring. So you just say, hey, the, the case is complete, or I just need eight more years, and I'll be done, but I promise. But, Brian, he's not saying. He's saying there's an ongoing investigation. And the problem is it used to be the FBI could say there's an ongoing investigation, and we would trust that that's true. After the last eight years, no one trusts that it's true anymore. Because it's already lasted too long. I'm not asking it to be an I hour agree. special, a TV special, but you're talking about something that happened in what year? You're talking about 2018? Brian, look, they, they dragged their feet so long that some of the best charges in the case against Hunter Biden are now time barred. I heard that. Yep. But I don't think that's the FBI's fault. I think it's the Justice Department's fault. Really? The FBI Why is that? The FBI's doing an investigation. Just complete it and say, here's the case. This is my... No, the, It doesn't work that way. The Justice Department is in the investigation. It's being run by the U.S. attorney in Delaware. It's actually being run by Garland. But who does the actual investigating? The FBI does, but it's just like the cops in New York. You know, if the DA won't bring the charges, then, you know, no matter how hard the cops work, they can't get the case charged. But can they say, I completed the investigation, hand it over to the Department of Justice, up to them? Well, it's up to the Justice Department whether the investigation's completed enough to the point where they think they can bring charges. And if the Justice Department's going to be political and not bring charges against the Biden, there's not much the FBI can do about that. They can complain, as some of the whistleblowers have done. Uh, those are mainly IRS whistleblowers, although I think Grassley and Johnson say that they've heard from FBI agents as well. Um, but, you know, it's up to the Justice Department to bring charges. I want you to hear uh, this exchange with, uh, with Chip Roy. Cut 16. I can tell you that every employee who in any way touched uh, the Crossfire Hurricane matter uh, has been referred to our Office of Professional Responsibility, our discipline. Are you concerned arm. about this, this activity by the FBI and what was communicated to the FISA court? Does that concern you as the director of the FBI? I consider the conduct that was described in the Durham report as totally unacceptable and unrepresentative of what I see from the FBI every day and must never be allowed to happen again. Some of which, uh, some of which happened since 2017. I think that what bothers me the most is if he took over, and this was 2017, 18, and he took over, yeah, this was a mess, and this is, this, this is the... Uh, this is the Inspector General report, and this is the Mueller report, and now this is the Durham report. I can see it. Yeah, yeah, that's what happened before. But a lot of this stuff is still happening under him. Now we're in 2023. He's had the job since 2017. Can you see any discernible change besides what he's saying publicly? Yeah, I can, but I also think he inherited a mess. I mean, I think the FBI was in terrible, terrible shape when he came in. He didn't really have help until Bill Barr... Uh, came in 2019 because uh, you know Sessions was too uh, well, and he was he was also cut out of the most important thing they were doing right on the Russia stuff. Uh, and I think that you know he he mentioned yesterday, for example, the FISA court. Everybody is talking about the uh, what is it, the 200,000 incidents they have of uh, backdoor searches in their right. FISA uh, database. As the FISA court said, their error rate is actually down 98 percent from what it was before he put in these uh, reforms he and Barr put in. I have one, uh, one last question to take. We only yeah, have a sure. minute left, and that's the laptop was unmasked as legitimate in 2019 in the fall. Yep. 
And yet he allowed all this to play out. The New York Post published a story, the account getting frozen, all the drama, the 51 agents that said it was was classic Russian disinformation. He knew the truth. What justifies him keeping his mouth shut? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of things that he should have done that he hasn't done. And, uh, you know, I thought you mentioned Chip Roy. I think Chip Roy pointed out that this guy, Brian Orton, who was enmeshed in the – in the Steele dossier mess and the misrepresentations that were made to the FISA court, he was somehow assigned to the Hunter Biden case or to do an intelligence assessment on the Biden family information. I, it, I don't understand. As Chip said yesterday, I don't understand how in the world that happens. Gotcha. What a, uh, so much uh, to talk about. Andy McCarthy, thanks so much. Always great. Back with your calls next. Brian Kilmeade here. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. The American people fully understand that there is a two-tier justice system that has been weaponized to persecute people based on their political beliefs, and that you have personally been weapon that you have personally worked to weaponize the FBI against conservatives. Director Ray, what are you prepared to do to reform federal law enforcement in a manner which earns back the trust of the American people? Well, first off, I would disagree with your characterization of the FBI and certainly your description of my own approach. Uh, The idea that I'm biased against conservatives uh, seems somewhat insane to me, uh, given my own personal background. You didn't stop it. And Andy McCarthy says, well, he's trying to change the culture and not talk about ongoing investigation. You didn't stop it. There was almost nothing happening to suppress anybody that was uh, against Joe Biden. Everything was pro-Trump. Anything that was pro-Trump was a target. And that was proven by three journalists, at least, Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberger, and Matt Taibbi, not one of which would be labeled a Republican or conservative in any stretch, in any walk, in any lunchroom, in any newsroom. So that you might be a Republican and you might have been picked by a Republican, but you really, your bureau that you're in charge of Sure, no bias towards the the right. In fact, it was against the right. And everyone would admit that was it was clear thinking and being honest. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Yeah, we are back, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade here, the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm joined by right now in studio, uh, Lieutenant General Mike Lunnington and Wounded Warrior Projects. He's a Wounded Warrior Project CEO, Army veteran, obviously. Uh, and guess who else is here? Uh, she is back with us, Danielle Green, Warrior, uh, Wounded Warrior speaker, uh, a veteran herself, and a very inspirational speaker at that. We love having her back. We just got you off television onto radio now. And uh, General, great to see you. Thanks, Brian. And and Danielle, great to see you, too. Thank you, Brian. Great to see you as well. All right. First off, Soldier Ride, in case people do not know, what just took place that has a bunch of uh, veterans rolling through Midtown Tunnel in Midtown Manhattan. It's an awesome three-day event. Starts right here at Fox and Friends. And by the way, 18 years here at Fox. So thanks for hosting us as always. Yeah. And by the way, Tony Snow tracked the first Soldier Ride on this radio show. And when he went to the White House, I got the show. So this is the same show where it all started. 2004, Chris Carney, Coast to Coast, Tony Snow. It really was the start of Wounded Warrior Project. It helped magnify what we do. Uh, Obviously, adaptive sports, 
um, getting getting warriors that have been critically wounded, injured, or ill back on a bike. Mind body connection. We all know that if you're physically active, your your mind is healthier than it would be if you were sitting on the couch eating chips. So uh, it really is a great event. And this is our six, more than our 650th soldier ride. More than 15,000 uh, individual participants have, have have taken part in the event. And this week we have about 40 veterans starting right here, uh, 20 miles to Coney Island, across the Brooklyn Bridge. And a police escort the police whole way. escort the whole way. Fire department. Every fire station is out with their entire fire fire crew out there saluting the veterans when they drive by. Police escort the whole way. We had the commissioner speak to us this morning, and then tomorrow we're at Babylon, twenty five mile ride at Babylon. That ride starts at nine o'clock. Open to the public. If you want to come ride with us in Long Island, come to the Babylon City Hall at eight thirty. Register and ride. And then Saturday we're in uh, we're in the Hamptons. I'm against it, the Sag Harbor and back, 25-mile ride. Stevens Talk House, right? Stevens Talk that's where it started. I mean, a bunch of guys sitting at a bar talking about raising awareness for veter- wounded veterans coming off the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's how it started. It's an amazing story. Right, very patriotic. Uh, it's a very patriotic ride, too. New York City, Long Island is extremely patriotic. Incredible. Uh, Babylon's great. And then you have the Hamptons, which is legendary. People think everybody's a celebrity. No, it is. <laughs> no. it's not everybody's celebrity. Now, Brian, when when the, when the Warriors ride on these three days, the outpouring of support, not just from FDNY and, uh, and New York New York Police Department, but thousands of people lining the streets with signs yeah. and flags mm-hmm. and waving and cheering, and it's what it's all about. I yeah. mean, and mm-hmm. it really gives our Warriors that participate the strength that carries them through their continued healing, mind, body, and spirit. And if you're watching Fox Nation right now, you see Danielle. Danielle, uh, you're going to be – you have your, your biker shirt on. Yes, sir. But you catch up at Coney Island, correct? I, I'm going to try to catch up after the after the show today. Yes. Oh, after and, the show. Yeah, after the show and ride the next – half today and the next two days. You served what years? I served in the military 2003 to 2004, so 23 months of service. And you got hit right away, right? Got hit right away four months into my deployment in Iraq. Right. How many months after college at the Notre Dame were you in Iraq? Probably two years later because I uh, was a school teacher and I coached high school girls basketball. And then I just felt this. I lost my identity and I wanted to be something bigger than myself. And I remember Your identity I, was a basketball player. Yeah, my, yeah, a scholar athlete, a student athlete. That was my identity. And I felt like I didn't really belong in any particular place. And then I remembered that I always wanted to serve my country. And I was getting older. So I pledged to serve at 26 years old. In the middle of a two hot wars. Yeah. Yeah. And I told people I knew we were at war, but that was the risk, uh, the chance I was willing to, to take for my country. And you got and when you got hit, what happened? Uh, when I got hit, um, I got hit by a rocket propeller grenade. You remember which, it? I remember it like it was yesterday. I've been telling the same story for almost 19 years. And, um, you know, the three things that I prayed for when I was on the rooftop that I would live, live to tell my story, and I wanted a child. And so far I have done everything, all three of those, and some more. And you have uh, your son. I have a nine-year-old. He'll be nine years old pretty soon, Daniel. All right, Daniel. Yes. And he's already in a military school, you were saying? He's at a military school. He's at Admiral Farragut Academy in St. Petersburg, Florida. And um, he loves it. They celebrate um, Veterans Day. He's even done a show and tell with my Purple Heart. So I'm slowly starting to instill some of the military values in him. So one day he might serve. And and that's what you want. I yeah. If that's what he wants. I will not force anything upon him. But I think, in my opinion, that every every American should serve at least two to four years. So you would like to see a draft come back? I'm not saying that, sir. I'm not saying that. But I would. 
I, I, I think just the values that, that the military instills in people, I think people would have a, a different appreciation for the United States of America if, if they served for us. Right. And, and I respect our flag and the patriotism that comes with that. Understood. In general, when you see these men and women take off, uh, what do they get out of it besides a great day of exercise? It's, it's the bonding that still takes place among the men and women, right? They, they're, on the, they're on a team. They have an objective. That's key. For all the warriors participating this week, this is the first time they've met each other. And it was actually yesterday during bike fitting. And then last night, they introduced themselves to each other at dinner. <clears throat> so over the next three days, just riding a bike for 70 miles through the heat of New York on a hot July day. It's really hot. Can, oh, gosh, yes. Brian. It was, um, it was unbelievable last year. And, we're, and we expect some rain, and they don't quit. I mean, they never quit. They never quit when they were in uniform. They never quit when they got wounded or injured, and they don't quit. We start as a group, we finish as a group, and the and the the cohort, the group at the end of this ride will be lifelong friends based but, on what they went through these next five you years. You know what I didn't notice for the first time, Danielle? I didn't notice the U-Haul. I thought the U-Haul, I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I didn't know they were part of the group. Oh, yeah. So yeah. they're there to fix the bikes, right? Help we, people we, out. Brian, we got this thing <laughs> down to science. We we bring the bikes in the back of a semi-trailer. We got bike techs. We got we got local community members coming out to support with water and snacks, volunteers all over the place. Because you've seen New York roads. Absolutely. I mean, you, they, you, there's potholes. Oh, oh, oh. And there's, Brian, <laughs> I, I had a flat. I've had two flats. I've you've had two flats. I've ridden it seven, uh, six times, and I've had two flats. And right. my bike, it's like the Tour de France going on right now. My bike has been fixed in one minute. On both of those, and flats. how many times do you? How many flats do you get in Jacksonville when you ride? I don't None. get any. Yeah. <laughs> New York, that's right? It's, it's right. unbelievable. And Chicago, and I haven't Chicago. Haven't had one in five years. In Chicago is bad, or good? They used to have bad potholes. So my first soldier ride was in 2005, and I had a prosthesis, and my my residual limb was brand new. You know, I just we had surgery. You know, the stitches removed, and I remember in Chicago, just every little bump would just agitate my residual limb. So Chicago right. is somewhat similar, but could be different. 18 years later, so. Who knows? So tell your story, uh, Daniel. I cut you off. What what, what, did, what happened when you woke up? What, you're missing your hand? Yeah, so when I woke up, the chain of command was standing at the foot of my bed, and I couldn't understand why they were crying because I was alive. So I was happy that I was alive. But then when I looked down, that's the first time I noticed that my left arm was shorter than my right arm. And Master Sergeant Harrelson was over there, and she's my son's godmother to this day. She retired as a command sergeant major. I said, Master Sergeant, is my arm missing? And she said, she said yes. And, and that's when I broke down for the first time. But I wiped my tears away because I was happy to be alive. And that's when the battalion commander, well, she told me about the story of Weren't the you rings. in tremendous pain? I'm sorry? Weren't you in tremendous pain? Not at the time. Good medicine. Good, good medicine at the time. They, uh, they had cleaned me up oh. and everything, so I didn't feel anything at the time. But that's when I was awarded. I was returned my rings um, from the rooftop um, after my arm because was Because on up. that hand exactly. were, were your wedding rings. Exactly. And so she told me about that story. She put the rings on me, and then a battalion commander pinned me with a purple heart and called me his hero. It's a hero with a, a S in the, in the front of it. And then you went to Germany. I went to Germany. Ramstein. Yes, and then who called you or a nurse recognized you, who you were? It wasn't you- a nurse. My traumatic surgeon was a Notre Dame graduate, and he happened to be the son of uh, Mr. Uh, retired, retired colonel 
who was part of our fast break club, and he was neighbors with Coach McGraw, and they were there visiting him. So he called them. They came and visited me. We took pictures, and then they called Coach McGraw up. Who does the legendary coach? Uh, coach Hall of Muffin. Fame. She's yes. a Hall of Fame coach now. Muffin McGraw. Yes, yes. And called him because you obviously were starting to realize, my hand's gone. Am I going to be able to play again? What's my life going to be like? Right. And so I told her, hey, Coach, all those years you want me to use my right hand, I have no other choice. <laughs> she uh, just went silent on the other end. She didn't, could not believe the, the gallows humor. Yeah, she couldn't. <laughs> so did, were you getting along with her at the time? You know, we kept in touch. When we I did. was in Iraq, we, we did keep in touch. I would email her from time to time. Because you were a handful in college, I, right? I was challenging. You know, Notre Dame wasn't an easy environment to navigate for me coming from the inner city of Chicago. And I don't think she quite had experienced too many Danielle with, Greens. With no dad and with no a dad, mom that mom had a drug issue. Drugs. Yeah, so I was out there on my own. And so I was looking for that support at the University of Notre Dame. But I just, I just don't think she was uh, accustomed to that type of kid. Well, that type of kid that got the ball every time. Right. Because you, you transformed your high school, correct? From exactly. a perennial loser to a winner. Yes. So when you weren't the key to the offense, that was a huge adjustment. Absolutely. But you know what? I think the best thing that happened to me is I tore my Achilles tendon. Now, some people may look at me and like, what? I tore my Achilles tendon my sophomore year, and I had to sit on the bench and learn from the upperclassmen. And you know what, Brian? We went to the Final Four that year. We went to the Final Four with seven healthy bodies, and that's when I think I really matured and realized, you know what, this is bigger than me. If you want to play, you need to change your mindset and work hard and get your butt out there in the court, and I did. Last cut of the Detroit shock? Yes, yes, yes. Um, it was heartbreaking, but then I realized, you know what, basketball has served this purpose. I got a free scholarship to attend the University of Notre Dame, not four years, but five years. So how many people can say that? Right. You know, General, the one thing that comes to mind is people have adverse circumstances when they grow up. And you got to look around and say, I have an excuse. I can be part of it or I'm just my, I want more out of life. That's when the military comes in. They provide the format. It's, I mean, you could have a mentor and you could get lucky, <clears throat> could be a great basketball player and have a great coach in an unbelievable college. But if you walk into the military, there is a structure. There. Yes. Brian, I can't tell you the thousands of amazing leaders uh, in the military that come from backgrounds like Danielle's, and they just want to they want a purpose. They want something bigger than themselves. They want to give back. The military offers opportunities for young people that uh, they, they don't even know, and it starts with values. I'm glad Danielle talked about values. It's about inculcating values of service and patriotism and, and duty and responsibility to each other. The training is amazing, especially in today's military, the technical training that you get in the military that transfers so well into civilian life after you take off the uniform. And then the leader development. I mean, you get to lead young men and women in tough conditions. And if you can lead in combat or tough conditions in training, right? you leave the military, you're, you're an amazing um, example and an amazing asset for companies or small businesses across the country. And now you're in the real world, but That's still right. helping out the military. Uh, Lieutenant General Michael Lennington is going to stick around. Uh, so is Danielle Green. When we come back, you used to run West Point. You were the superintendent, right? I was commandant of cadets. Commandant of cadets. I had a boss. I had a three-star boss. I was in charge of the Corps, the, uh, the development of the Corps of cadets. Well, you see what's going on right now in Congress. Nobody's getting promotions. No one's getting assignments. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is not going to get nominated or a vote. Uh, because of some a break between Republicans and Democrats and the Pentagon when it comes to so-called woke politics. And we come back. What's going on in Capitol Hill that affects our, our, our ability to be ready to fight? Uh, that story and more. And keep in mind, too, if you want to help out with the soldier ride, uh, go to WoundedWarriorProject.org. 
correct? Yep. WoundedWarriorProject.org. Gotcha. That's right. Back in a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. You could hardly send a worse message to people who are thinking about joining the military and maybe making a career out of it than is being sent right now with these military holds. Uh, You have to ask uh, Senator Tuberville about that. Um, Do you support that? No, I don't support uh, putting a hold on military nominations. So Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican, Senator Tim Kaine, uh, Democrat, upset that Senator Tommy Tuberville uh, feels as though he's holding out, ready, he's holding out all promotions and assignments, including chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the rotation, because he feels as though, over to overstate it, there's too much woke politics going on at the Pentagon, one of which is supplying federal money for abortions. So they say with this new rule, with the Dobbs decision, if you want to go get an abortion you are, and you're in a state that doesn't allow it, we're going to provide money for you to go to another state to do it. And he said, unless you re- change that policy, no promotions. And right now we're in a standoff with me in studios, Lieutenant General Michael Linnington spent decades in the military, still helping out with the Wounded Warrior Project where he's the director and somebody that served uh, with honor, Daniel Green, Purple Heart recipient, is also here. So your reaction to what's going on and what it means to the military. I don't want you to weigh in on who's right or wrong. That'll get you in trouble. Right. But what does it mean for the men and women in uniform? Yeah, Brian, men and women in uniform rely on leadership and leadership has to be in place for them to, you know, train and fight as we expect them to train and fight and represent us around the world. So uh, I think we should take politics out of the military. And certainly when you pledge an oath to the Constitution, when you join the military, you're not pledging an oath to a political party. You're pledging an oath to our country. So um, I do think we need to get these confirmations done quickly. And I really think that we ought to take the focus off of politics in the military. And I'll just tell you, as a senior, former senior military official, when you take the uniform off, you should stop opining about uh, about politics. I mean, you should focus on what what you've always focused on, which is, you know, how do we how do we recruit, retain and train and fight to win our nation's wars. And, and Daniel, and as um, as someone that was actually in the military, I always thought that was the where love, the playing field was level, where people didn't care about man, woman, black, white, and that's what I thought. And there's a fear among the men and women in the military, many of which I'm lucky enough to know and uh, and interview, that they that the Pentagon has changed, the military culture has changed. It's all politically correct wokeness, and this is part of that stand. So do you hear from the people still in that the culture is changing? You know, I I really can't talk about that because everybody I know, they've retired now. So I don't have a clue about what's going on in active military, but I try to stay connected with the veterans community. Would it concern you if it did? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. If I was more informed on what was going on, then I think I could voice my opinion. But So when that this is his uh, stand, so they say that if you are – Getting money to go get an abortion, that is politics, General. And yeah. that is get infiltrating into the culture of the Pentagon. Well, I was in the Pentagon last in 2015, Brian. I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not in the Pentagon right now <laughs> dealing with these very sensitive issues. 
and some of the challenges clearly. Well, uh, the result has been recruiting stamp. Yeah, recruiting's down. I think that's very widely publicized. I think we have to do a better job as former military at all ranks to explain to young people like Danielle's son about the benefits of military service. And I think we have lost that culture of explaining the value of service and sacrifice and training and some of the amazing leadership you get while you're in uniform. And I take that on personally. I take that on as a veteran. I think veterans writ large ought to spend more time not just with their family members, but in their communities and the high schools, get back in the high school. I mean, we broke from the high schools during COVID and recruiters were not, were not permitted in the high schools, obviously, because of the, the threat of infection. So we need to get the recruiters back into the high schools to talk about military service. And at the end of the day, we need role models like Danielle that have demonstrated what service right. means to her and how it helped her and her family and then I think right. we'll, I think the shortfalls will take. Daniel care of Green, I want to follow up on the story we opened up with your personal story. You had a but you men and women in go back and get the rings off your hand. You reconnected right. with that person that got the rings. I did. So thanks to your show and the Twelve Days of Christmas, um, my platoon sergeant, I found out um, he was the one that went back up to the rooftop to retrieve the rings, and we reconnected. Awesome. And you're going to meet later. him again. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Thanks, guys. Thank WarriorProject.org. WarriorProject.org. Thank. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hello, welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. I come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, heard around the world. Uh, we have Dan Bilak coming to us from Ukraine. As you know, Dan is a member of the Territorial Defense Forces. He went from an accountant guy in a business suit to the camouflage. Uh, everybody's pitching in Ukraine. they got to win. And we know about all the dramatics that are taking place at NATO. Uh, Jesse Waters is standing by. And we're, seeing, we're also seeing the President of the United States uh, in Finland. I guess he had enough sleep last night. And we'll get some details of this. Ukraine getting into NATO. Uh, Sweden possibly getting in. I thought it was a done deal. Now Turkey says, I might need till October. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. 2024, Tim Scott shows he's a money player and suddenly has Republicans and Democrats worried. Also, no labels is having a summit. Legit moderates showing up, possible candidates that should concern both Trump and Biden. Number two. This was really maddening. Uh, you know, he had more details uh, when Eric Swalwell asked him about FBI Family Day. He went on length about that. But when you deal with something that was just the subject of a 155-page report, he draws a blank. And it is maddening for Jonathan Turley especially, and he'll be testifying tomorrow. Republicans' fury and frustration on display as Christopher Ray defends the FBI that he should be fixing. Number one. Vladimir and I, we, the, I should, shouldn't be so familiar. Uh, Mr. Zelensky and I uh, talked about the kind of guarantees we could make in the meantime. Joe on stage, his message, his presence, his policy from NATO to the G7. Has he helped himself? Has he helped the country? You make the call, or better yet, Let's let Jesse Waters make the call. His show, uh, Primetime, is moving to primetime, uh, 8 o'clock. Uh, and I think that he's adjusting his schedule now, picking out much nicer suits, uh, new socks, I imagine, maybe even nicer shoes for full body shots. Jesse, are you excited about next Monday? I did get a pair of new shoes, but I already don't like them. You already? Why? Because they already. don't feel so good or they, they don't, don't look good? Smoke. 
So most loafers have these little rubber soles on the toe yeah. so you don't slip when you push off because I like to run to set. And this has nothing. So I'm ice skating around. Yo, that's the exact – that's my theory with, with Trump coming down in the rain after speaking at West Point. If you have those leather soles with your brand-new shoes, you, you know, you skate. So this guy, 70-something years old, they thought that he had a problem. They're like, what's wrong with Trump? Is he, you know, is he losing it? Man, little did we know what we'd be doing for the next two years. We're watching a president of the United States shuffle everywhere. Well, not only is he shuffling, he's laying out on the beach, Brian. Mr. Kilmeade, if you were the president of the United States, would you ever in a million years want the entire world to see you laying on the beach with your eyes closed? Not in a million years, and if I had a chief of staff worth a don, like, worth a penny, they would say, "Miss President, you got five hundred cameras here." Uh, go go body surfing. Exactly. You know, pl- play play beach volleyball. Do anything. Cornhole. <laughs> Lay there with your eyes closed and your skin glistening, and then have trouble carrying a beach chair which weighs seven pounds back to the house. We want to see you relax, but not that relaxed. You know, here, here, there's a couple of things. It also shows me his staff is scared of him. And that story has to be 100% true, that no one will go see him alone because he's, he always erupts in anger. So there, you can almost see them saying, Jesse, hey, who's going to tell the president? Real, he's 80. He is white as a ghost. And you go to the beach with 100 cameras. Uh, and they probably just said, no, it's not worth it. It's not worth getting blasted. Well, because if you notice Joe Biden, he only snaps when you challenge him personally. He doesn't get angry about the border, the crime wave, inflation. It's only when you mention, oh, wait, are you talking to Hunter about business? Uh, Do (laughs) you actually have seven grandchildren? If you you challenge his integrity, he he calls you a stupid son of a bitch. Right. But I understand that. I, I, I used to work for someone who used to yell. I don't and, remember. And he could it he is, could be it very intimidating. Scary. But you you know for the good of the country you got to you got to step it up. So Jesse, what are your thoughts about going to 8? I'm nervous about dinner, Brian. What do you mean? So right now I come in at 3:45, I have a salad of the same lunch every day. Salad. And then I do my show, it's over at 8. Five. It takes me an hour to get home. I get back, I eat at at 9 o'clock. Now, I'm leaving at 10 o'clock. I get home at 10 o'clock. I can't eat at 10 o'clock. What am I going to have to do? I might have to eat two meals at my desk with Johnny. So that's the only thing you're nervous about. I have to eat two meals with Johnny, my assistant. And that is going to hurt your personal life, or you get to know Johnny too well? (laughs) Are you saying that? I might risk my marriage and run away with Johnny. <laughs> no, I'm not saying it's out, that's out, not out of the question. So, <laughs> oh, thanks, Brian. No, that that's the biggest change to my schedule. So, you think it's going to be the I same show at eight, Jesse? You think it's going to be the same show at eight because it's unbelievably successful at seven? You feel as though you could just take? Is there anything you're looking to do? Are you going to get a band? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not going to have a band. We. The only thing we're going to do different, we're going to do a little more enterprise reporting. We're going to be sending more people out into the field all over the country. 
I think you've seen some of these. You know how Pete Buttigieg spent $17 million to build an anti-racist hiking trail? And you go to these places and they say, well, Joe Biden's giving you $17 million. And everyone says, yeah. And then you say, but it's for a hiking trail. And people say, get the hell out of here. What? It's the last thing. they need. So we'll be doing that. We'll be doing ambushes. We'll be doing some undercover work, some investigations. Everything else is still going to be the same because I'm incapable of changing. And you shouldn't uh, because you had success. You had the same studio. You just move up a little bit. You have two two meals with Johnny. Have you thought, Jesse, put in perspective that you were a, you were in the tape room and then you were a segment producer. You're out doing some interviews for the 8 o'clock show and now you're hosting it. Did you did you project this trajectory? Because you've earned every every step of the way. You've earned it. But was this always the goal? If I went up to your mirror in the bathroom, would that be the little sticky pad in the corner? <laughs> You're not allowed in my bathroom anymore. Anymore <laughs> after the incident. Yes. If I tell you that I've wanted to do the eight o'clock since I was 23, I sound like a maniac. But if I tell you the, the thought never crossed my head, you'd call me a liar. But what I've tried to do is just take it a day at a time. And I always tell myself, whatever happens, happens. If they want to put me in a different position, thank you for the opportunity. I'm incredibly grateful. But this wasn't some well-thought-out plan that I've been uh, stewing over since my early 20s. This is just an incredible story um, from the basement to eight. And um, it's, you know, I've had great producers, great co-hosts. I'm thrilled. Honor. Now, will you have a diff- will you have a bigger chip on your shoulder on the five, or will it remain the same? I think I'm going to be a little more arrogant. Is that possible? Touche. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Anything's so, possible. <laughs> so I love the way you start the show with the movie clips and set a tone. Last night, you were rolling clips I never heard before of Hunter Biden and what he, what, who exactly he is and what he got away with leading to these while doing international business deals with the stakes could not be higher and evidently earning money, according to his text, for his entire family. I want you to hear Hunter Biden that you played last night on Pod Save, Pod Save America, which are these former Obama guys who have this podcast. This is April of 2021, cut 19. The money you made through your, your clients that enabled that addiction and also maybe the ways it protected you from consequences that might have landed a lot of other people in jail. I think it's completely unfair. And I think that I am 100 percent um, still here today and not in a uh, jail cell or um, in an institution uh, because of my privilege and not just the privilege of a family that loved me, but the privilege of the fact that, you know, I, I had uh, been uh, very successful. Successful. That's interesting. So he's but he's not admitting quite that it's the, the family that got him out and expunged his record. So he's confessing that he has Biden privilege and he should be in jail if he wasn't a Biden. That's what we've all been saying for the last three years. Now, I, I may say something right now that might be wrong or unpopular because I don't know a lot about addiction. I don't have an addictive personality. But Hunter's addiction seems a little different. Hunter just seems like he's partying. I agree. You have willpower, Brian. Addicts get clean. 
addicts with the most extreme addictions to hardcore narcotics do get clean through willpower, through discipline. He, he does not have the willpower, the discipline, and he's never faced the consequences. And when you face the consequences, sometimes you clean up your act. Sometimes you have to hit rock bottom. Sometimes you do have to go to jail. Sometimes your daddy doesn't bail you out, and you have to turn your life around. He's never had to do that. And it's, his life's been one big party, one big grab bag overseas for the family. And it makes me angry that he's allowed to get away with it, and he admits the reason why he gets away with it, and no one else in the country can get away with it. And it's just not fair. And the American people know it's not fair. And that's what's driving everybody crazy. And this is the cut that shows the party in Cut 20. The Roosevelt Hotel is right across the street from us. This is where yeah. you had, would you call it a bender? Is I was a, at every hotel in Los Angeles, basically. You'd hole um, up there yeah. until every, they and every, out. Every motel, every hotel, until they... Uh, until they wouldn't have a room for me <laughs> the next day. It One of the stories was you went just down the block from us, the Sunset La Brea, and yeah. you looked for some guys who might be able to yeah. get you something. Yeah. And um, yeah. then you wound up getting it and yeah. using crack with them. So, I mean, he's exploring this, saying this, and that plays into your theory on the partying. When people usually start off partying, they get addicted and they go off on their own and they end up on Skid Row. This guy was going to bigger parties. What was the so what was the cover of the New York Post last week? Two hundred miles an hour across the desert to go to Las Vegas to meet with a bunch of hookers in a bathtub. That doesn't sound. That sounds like the. That sounds like a, a hangover uh, sequel. He, he's a man child, and he's never grown up because his father wouldn't let him grow up because his father's not a great parent. Let's just call it like it is, and it's not crazy to ask whether Hunter had the coke in the White House. Why would that be crazy? It's not crazy to ask maybe if Ashley Biden had the coke in the White House. She's had coke problems. They've both been in rehab. So to say that we're not allowed to talk about it or draw conclusions tells me there's a good chance it was one of their uh, bags, or maybe it was one of their friends' bags. But the fact that they're stonewalling this, we had a guy on last night, Brian, who says they probably figured out who this was within the first day. Cameras everywhere. They fingerprinted it. What are they hiding? If it was a construction worker, then that guy would already be in handcuffs. But since they haven't told us anything, I'm thinking it might be involved with someone in the family. The one thing Ari Fleischer said, no cameras. He said the big thing that people are getting wrong, there are no cameras there. There are entrance cameras to every single door. There may not be cameras showing hallways or passageways, but there's cameras all over the White House outside. You know who comes in, when they come in, who they come in with, how they come in. And so to not show us the logs, to not show us the the entry cameras, it's a cover-up. And now the FBI is involved. And what does that tell you? It's definitely a cover-up. So I'm going to give you a scenario. Don Jr., President Trump is there. Don Jr. and Eric came to visit. They were working in the private sector. Ivanka came by with Jared at one point, and they find cocaine in a cubbyhole by the Situation Room. How big a story is this? It would still be leading the news a week later. And they thought Don Jr. is on coke now. (laughs) 
I know. Don hasn't had a drink in like 20 years. The Trump family are the most straight as arrow family you will ever meet. They don't drink. They don't party. They have one they thing that smoke. they don't do. Any, they're not allowed. They get disowned right, in two right. seconds. Right. 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 So and now, and they, what, they had a trans flasher at the Biden White House. There's cocaine at the Biden White House. Now, this was supposed to be the adult in the room. So, so Jesse, you're going to be in the same studio. Is it going to be air conditioned at eight, like it was at seven? The same Freon you're using. Everything is going to be the same. Yeah. So you guys are going to sweat because we're going to use all the Freon. Right. <laughs> By the time you guys come on, it's probably going to be like a sauna. So let me ask some. Will you be forced to hang out with Sean and Laura since you're all prime time in the same and Gutfeld? Will you guys be like almost a pack? Will you be the Brat Pack of this generation? <laughs> well, my mother won't let me hang out with Gutfeld. <laughs> you know that, like, one kid in, in, in grade school your parents wouldn't let you hang out with? That's Gutfeld. And it served me well. So, uh, have... Sean, I'd love to hang out with. I love hanging out with Sean. He's, like, the nicest guy ever. And uh, Laura, I don't get to see a lot because she's in D.C., but uh, I'm yeah, sure... we're the new Rat Pack. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll change. And, Jesse, have you heard from Bill? Yeah, I've spoken to him a couple times. He gives me great advice. I can't share it, but it's hilarious, and it's honest, and it's true. And is he happy for you? He's very happy for me. He's not a happy guy in general. I mean, he's not, he's not happy, you know, Bill, but I think, I think he's, he's happy for me if, if, if you consider Bill capable of happiness. Right. Actually, the last time I saw Bill, it was the happiest I've ever seen him, and he's always got great insight, and everyone goes to him for advice. Uh, Jesse Waters, congratulations. Well earned. And I want to talk to you Saturday night on One Nation. Is that possible? Yeah, I'll see you then. All right. Uh, Jesse Waters, and watch tonight at 7. Brian Kilmeade Show, back in a moment. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The first foreign visitor. First foreign visitor. Soon NATO will be the thirty-second freestanding. Have free thirty-three, thirty-two freestanding members ceasing its attacks on its inhumane attacks on Russia. I mean, by Russia on Ukraine. May God protect the freedoms of the. The protectors of freedom. So the president had a speech. Those were not the highlights. Uh, they were the lowlights, but it tends to happen. You know, I know there's only a few Bill Clintons of the world, a few Ronald Reagans of the world, a few Barack Obama soaring rhetoric. But I would assume if you're staying in the night before to do a great speech, you would do a great speech. And this is part of this is the job interview for the next four years. Do you think it's going to get better after this? And I also think the slow walking of these arms, the president wants to take a bow to say that NATO got greater and bigger. I would argue that you were about to give Russia Nord Stream 2, and NATO was not stronger. They were taking a breather after Trump demanded they pay 2%. Only nine countries of the 32 were doing it, 2% of the defense budget. And the thing that united them was the invasion, invasion of Ukraine. The president's got to speak about it, tell the American people why it matters, because they're losing momentum. And we got to get them the weapons. We're going to get them. Get them right now, because people are dying as we wait.
radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. When Putin and his craven lust for land and power unleashed his brutal war on Ukraine, he was betting NATO would break apart. But he thought wrong. We will not waver. We will not waver. I mean that. Our commitment to Ukraine will not weaken. We will stand for liberty and freedom today, tomorrow, and for as long as it takes. So that is the President of the United States yelling his way through a speech in uh, Lithuania yesterday, saying Ukraine will be there. You'll eventually be in NATO. Just not yet. By the way, it, you could easily say, which is in the charter, we cannot add a nation in the middle of an active war. That's a fact. Uh, Daniel Bilak is a member of the Territorial Defense Fund, a defense force of Ukraine. Dan's also an attorney based in Kiev. Uh, and he's with a Kinesteller international law firm and a former chief investment advisor to the prime minister of Ukraine. Uh, and he's there uh, helping out the best he can. Uh, Dan, welcome back. Yeah, good to be on your show again, Brian. Thanks. How do you view uh, the NATO summit? Well, you know, it was uh, it was not it was not what we hoped for, but better than probably we we could expect, I guess. I mean, what's 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 clear, Brian, is that you know Ukraine is ready for NATO, but NATO's not yet ready for you for Ukraine. I mean, here we are. We're basically, you know, acting as NATO's eastern shield today. We're protecting the alliance. We're we're we're, we're degrading the Russians by half. You know, half their army has been lost by by our our work. And together with you, I mean, you know, we've we've been, you know, if it wasn't for the people of the United States and and, and our other allies, we we we'd never be where we are today. There's no question. But you know, I just don't get how. Ukraine doesn't get a clear invitation because it's so obvious that we are going to make NATO stronger and Europe safer. I mean, we 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 have the strongest battle-hardened army that knows how to fight the Russians, which are the sworn enemy of NATO because they say they're the sworn enemy of NATO. You know, how how do you not let somebody like that in into the clubs to make make yourself stronger? You know, I guess the good news is that we've got a probably the clearest statement we have ever had that we are part of the West and that we will become a member of, of, of NATO. But, you know, we, we, we've, we've heard this before. And, you know, our, our biggest fear is that, you know, we, we, we end up being a bargaining chip on the table of big power mm-hmm. politics uh, and, uh, and, and, and get thrown under, under the bus. But, you know, we, 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 we've got to take what we can get. And, and we got some strong language, but, we, we, we have 70 percent of the American people supporting us joining NATO after after the war's over, after our victory. And, you know, I, I wish the administration would have would have listened to that and made made something a little more a little more stronger that gives us a, a clear path into the uh, uh, into the alliance, uh, you know, based on criteria. That's fine. But you know we're we're fighting for the same values that NATO has. We're 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 part of the team. We're we're all mm-hmm. you know we don't we're we're not any different than any of the other countries. It's interesting that we're fighting the Russians, which NATO was designed to defend against. So we're defending against the Russians, and Sweden and Finland get in, <laughs> which is which is really bizarre. But there right. you go. So here is John Kirby talking about this. Uh, he's the uh, former admiral. Well, I would tell you, and we've said this many, many times, uh, we believe that NATO is 
in Ukraine's future. I mean, that's something that the alliance agreed way back in, in 2008. Now, there's some reforms, good governance, rule of law, political reforms that Ukraine still needs to work on. And we understand that it's pretty hard to work on some of those reforms when you're at war. And, of course, they are at war right now. So NATO membership in the immediate future isn't likely because that would put NATO at war with Russia. So your thoughts about his thoughts? Yeah, those are he's putting up straw men there uh, to knock down. For one, we, we've never asked to be allowed into NATO while the war was on. So, that, you know, that's that, that that's something we all agree on. And, you know, putting up, you know, good governance, rule of law, democratization. You know, there are, there are a lot of NATO countries that have a bigger democratic deficit than we do. And I, and I think that we've proven our democratic credentials with free and fair elections. And, and you know, we have, we, have, we have issues here in governance like, like everybody else does. And, and we'll deal with those. And frankly, we'll deal with those as part of our joining the EU. Uh, but, you know, for, for joining NATO, it should be about how do we fight? How, how do we, you know, we have the values that, that we share with, with the American people and others. And, you know, how do we fight as a, as, as a nation? And, you know, frankly, you know, this zoo park of, of, uh, of, of weapons that we're getting from all these different NATO nations, frankly, Brian, we're the only country that knows how to make them all work together, make them interoperable. So there's a lot of stuff we could be teaching NATO about how to use their weapons. So anyway, you know what? We, we can't be – I don't want to sound in any way ungrateful. But you got to um, win. Yeah, you, know, you want to win first, but then we'll, we'll handle this. But I want to tell you, yeah. listen to what, what, what the president said twice and then John Kirby said about ammo. Listen. They are using artillery at a very accelerated rate, Martha, many thousands of rounds per day. This is literally a gunfight uh, in, in all along from the Donbass all the way down towards Zaporizhia and Kherson. Uh, and so they're running out of inventory. Um, we are trying to ramp up our production of the kind of artillery shells that they're using most. But that production rate is still not where we want it to be. So we're going to send these additional artillery shells that have cluster bomblets in them uh, to help bridge the gap as we ramp up production of normal 155 artillery shells. So I did not know they were getting that low even in our stocks. Does that concern you long term? Well, it, can, it concerns me in the immediate term uh, because, it, it, you know, it affects our ability to prosecute the war now. You know, look, we were told that you guys need to learn, you guys need to train and learn how to fight with something called combined arms operation, infantry, armor, artillery, and airplanes, right? Those four. And if each one of those represents a limb of a body, we're going in with one hand tied behind our back because we don't have airplanes. And, you know, in, in, in Iraq, Brian, you know, the Americans and, and its allies flew over 41,000 sorties by almost 2,000 aircraft over the course of a month to defeat the Iraqis. And we have, no, we have none of that. So we are going in. I've got friends with GoPro on their helmets sending me back just horrific, you know, video of them storming trenches. You know, they're going in and they're digging these guys out and taking them out in, in their trenches to, to take the land. And frankly, we've been pretty successful over the course of the last month. We've taken back more land in the last month than the Russians took in six months. But it's, it's hard slogging without, without, without the air. Mm-hmm. So having, having the cluster bombs is going to be a big help. 
We need attackums because we need to continue to degrade their supply lines, which we're doing. But, but I heard the French their... are giving you long, uh, long-range rockets. Is that true? Yeah, but... Does that mean you still need attackums? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, <laughs> it's never enough, Brian. You know, you, you get 10 here, 11 there, but, you know, it means the attackums are so effective that you can start taking out, I mean, we'll hit Crimea with them. We'll take out uh, the Black Sea Fleet. We can take out the, Her- the, the Crimean Bridge and, and things like that. I mean, if we had, Brian, 100 F-16s plus 500 tanks plus the attackums, this war would be over in a month. Right now, uh, we understand the Russians have had a muted response to all this unity going on at NATO, which is interesting. They just said we're going to to adjust our defense posture to counter Sweden now as a member. We also this speculation uh, that the that Wagner is disbanded. That there was a report yesterday that they've given up almost all their weapons, and their leader is disappeared, dead or in jail, according to. Uh, General Robert Abrams uh, yesterday. What do you think is happening there? Well, I mean, th- this is actually the, the, the big outcome for me uh, from, from the NATO summit is that, you know, the, 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 the NATO allowed Putin to continue weaponizing their fears of escalation, whereas we should be actually, hopefully will be doubling down to, to really take, take out the Russians uh, at uh, at a point where they're very very where they've been significantly weakened. Um, look, you know, I don't know that we're dealing with Putin anymore. We're probably dealing with one article called the collective Putin. I mean, what's happened around Prigozhin's uh, attempted coup has been very weird, uh, and it shows that that there is a huge power struggle going on in Russia right now, and Putin may not be completely in charge. And, and that, that, that means that NATO has to get ready for, to do what it can to, to control what it can. And it can't control what goes on in Russia, but it can control what goes on in Ukraine. So if we defeat the Russians totally in, in Ukraine, that will set off a chain of events in Russia that, that, that we just need to start getting ready for. And, you know, NATO, he's never been really afraid of NATO um, he, he understands what NATO is. I mean, as soon as he, one of his reasons for going to war, he said, was that uh, he wanted to curb NATO expansion. Well, he just got Finland adding with Finland adding 1300 kilometers. You know, it's almost a thousand miles to to his NATO border with Ukraine. And you know what he did? He moved all of his troops from the Finnish border into the Donbass and and to the south. So he wasn't really worried about the threat from NATO, to be honest with you. So obviously, he just the, doesn't want Ukraine to become a member because he wants Ukraine. Uh, listen, I'm not a, I'm not George Patton, but if you want to <laughs> get some of the Russians out of your country, shouldn't they feel threatened by their own city? But if you want, to, you saw what happened and how quickly the Wagner Group almost got to Moscow, and most of the troops are in your country in the Ukraine. And if you want to get them out, shouldn't we give them reason to think that there might be some Ukrainians on the march to Moscow, too? Yeah, well, as soon as if that if that ever if, if our allies ever got a hint of that, we'd be we'd be cut off at the knees in a in a second. You know, I, I, not not only is it unfortunate we don't have a George Patton, it's unfortunate we don't have a Ronald Reagan in charge right now, because I think we would have had a very different summit. 
you know, the evil empire would have been uh, really put on its knees uh, coming out of this summit, in my in my view. But there you go. All right, uh, Daniel, the, the fight right now, we understand uh, the fight itself is going all the way across the entire border. Is there a focus? I know they they try to hit Odessa. They, they're hitting you know, Kiev with the Iranian drones. What else can you tell us about the battle itself? Yeah, we had a we had a big drone attack last night. My whole house shook. Uh, windows rattled. It was uh, it was pretty intense. Um, but yeah, we are. Look, we we since we don't have the air cover, we're not doing a frontal assault, and that's why everybody says you read in the West about our our counteroffensive being stalled. It's not being stalled. We're just fighting smart. We've got twelve assault brigades, uh, three of which have been committed, and they're probing along this long line to where the Russians are most are the weakest. And they are we are we almost have them surrounded in Bakhmut now, Brian. We've now taken the high ground there, so they're in deep trouble in in Bakhmut. And you know, strategically, I think it seems to be that the tactic is that to 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 kill them in Bakhmut. And that'll be a huge blow to the Russian army. I think you'll see a, a, a possible collapse along that line. But, you know, they're also quite brittle around uh, down in the south as well, which is why we're constantly every day taking out ammo dumps, fuel dumps, railway lines, bridges, command posts. We killed a general in, uh, in Berdyansk uh, deep behind their lines. They couldn't believe it. It was one of those storm shadow uh, rockets. This is why the attackums are so important, because we can hit them way beyond their lines where their dumps are, because they move them back uh, to a place where they think is safe uh, from the missiles that we have, because they didn't think we could hit them. And now that we're showing them we can, it's it's showing... All, they're, they're in complete disarray, especially after the uh, uh, the Prigozhin thing. It's It's not really clear who's in charge. So you know, this is the time to, to really double down, and, and we can do this with the, with the help of the people of the United States and our, and our other allies. Um, you know, we, we've got everything to play for um, and, and to try to get this done this year. I hope so. Uh, Daniel Bilak, uh, thanks so much. Continue to uh, show that bravery and uh, keep in the fight. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and give us the inside, the inside story. Thank you, and God bless the people of the United States. All right. Love uh, you all. You got it. Uh, back at you. Uh, back in a moment, you listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show, and we come back. If you want to write, you can do it, briankilmeade.com. Just click on comments, and I'll get to them. And also, one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Don't move. Expanding your knowledge base, it's the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, I think his staff needs to own his age. I'm just going to be honest. I don't think they do a good job uh, helping out the president. And I'm not talking about it like I'm just saying if you are managing a president's schedule and you are managing a president getting on stage and getting off stage and doing getting on planes and getting off planes. And yes, he's 80. You need to be there for him, and you need to make a pathway. And you sure as hell better make sure he doesn't fall on a sandbag. Mika Brzezinski on another channel telling everybody it's not Joe Biden's fault that he can't walk, doesn't know how to leave a stage. You can't be president. If you can't leave a stage, that all you need is somebody to point you in the right direction. Zelensky's grabbing him by the arm. The king is grabbing him by the arm. 
Now he's taking some questions. They're the easiest questions I've ever seen an American president take. He just made headlines by saying everybody knows Russia has already lost the war, so that'll be headlines tomorrow. He said it uh, moments ago. Uh, but her saying that he has bad staff, this is a president of the United States. Bad staff is not briefing him fully on all the opportunities and different questions you might be receiving. A sandbag, I don't know. The sandbag evidently was there for 45 minutes. Number two, plenty of times to eye it. Uh, number three is you should be able to leave one stage the right way. So let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. Succession star Brian Cox talking to the great Pierce Morgan yesterday on the woke culture. He's fed up. The whole woke culture, I think, is truly awful. And the shaming culture. And the shaming culture. Which I really feel quite strongly no, about. No, that it's is... This incessant need to shame yeah. and bury people. And I, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know who's, who are the arbiters of these, this shaming. Right. And it's very hard to pin them down. And mm. it turns out it's usually a bunch of millennials. You know? Right. And who, and who gave them the halos? I don't know. I mean, it's extraordinary. Well, I mean, I, I suppose in a way they're probably saying, well, you've all screwed it up, so we may as well right. do something about it. Mm. But it's, it's from the wrong principle. It's the wrong, it comes from the wrong place. Well, there's Brian Cox. I don't really watch Succession, but uh, he's as fed up as anybody, and it's so interesting. It didn't come from him, but for, this all really started in Hollywood. And now they can't believe how it's blowing up the, uh, the award shows and their movies. Uh, and everything else. Well, tough. You started it. Next, Ozempic is being investigated for a link to suicidal thoughts. So wait a second. The drug that's supposed to help regulate diabetes, which is suddenly being used as a weight loss drug, could also make you kill yourself? I thought if you lost weight, you'd feel better about yourself. Yeah, because apparently it's also curbing your appetite or enthusiasm for food. So I guess when you're, you don't have any enthusiasm for life in general where it's taking that away from you as a side effect, I guess that's where it leads into some suicidal thoughts. I always wonder about when you make something for one thing and it's used for something else, I kind of worry. Uh, the other thing is, this is so true, the legalization of pot in the United States appears to have a direct link to an increase of fatal road crashes. 22% of the, t- of the road crashes are up 22%. Of course it is, because you need a blood test to test these people. There's a lot of times there's no outward display that you're on anything. All bad. I was against it. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. We come to you from Midtown Manhattan. We are heard around the country. We are heard around the world. Uh, Douglas Murray is now in studio. If you're smart enough to have Fox Nation, bottom of the hour, Bobby Barak. We'll talk about those two major Supreme Court decisions and also the threat, uh, the threat of thread to Twitter. We'll talk about that as Elon Musk seems to have bounced back off that worry and starting his own AI company. I wish I thought I was productive this week. Uh, I think he's a little bit more productive along as running Tesla, pledging his allegiance to China, which was a little disconcerting. But we have a lot to discuss before we get to Douglas. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Tim Scott shows he's a money player in 2024 and suddenly has Republicans and Democrats uh, worried in many respects. Also, No Labels is having a summit featuring a legit moderate as a possible candidate. And can No Labels be an alternative to Trump and Biden. 
Number two. This was really maddening. Uh, you know, he had more details uh, when Eric Swalwell asked him about FBI Family Day. He went on length about that. But when you deal with something that was just the subject of a 155-page report, he draws a blank. Republican fury and frustration on display as Christopher Ray defends the FBI uh, and the FBI that he should be fixing. Number one. Vladimir and I, we... The, I should, shouldn't be so familiar. Uh, Mr. Zelensky and I uh, talked about the kind of guarantees we could make in the meantime. Right. Uh, that is Joe Biden. Joe on stage. The message is presence, his policy from NATO to the G7 to his meeting in Finland uh, and the press conference he just had. Uh, Douglas, we haven't seen every minute of, of, of his press conference. You were riding up here at the time. But for the most part, with the Finnish president, the message was uh, they had a bunch of easy questions. Should Ukraine be in NATO? Not yet. Uh, will they? Yes. And Russia has already lost the war, probably is the takeaway, uh, according yeah. to him. And the fact that, again, Republicans shouldn't overplay the, the, you know, their criticisms of Biden not being able to get through the odd press conference. He can get through one like that, as you say, with relatively softball questions, about very softball questions, uh, familiar territory for him. Uh, no special gaffes. I think the Republicans have to be very careful about about overstating the extent. Well, they just disagree. A lot of them are beginning yeah. to disagree with the amount of aid we're giving and just calling for peace, which is crazy because that's not even on the table right now. It's not on the table, no. And, I mean, obviously at some point it will be. And the, the, po- the point that the president made that effectively Russia has already lost the war, that is that is true. I mean, it is now at this stage – Almost inconceivable to see how Russia could bounce back and achieve what in the early stages of the war in Ukraine were its obvious goals, which was to make Ukraine – Take the country and put their own person in Exactly, to make it a satellite state of of Moscow like Belarus is. Um, They failed at that and it's it's impossible pretty much to see how they could achieve that now. Can they hold on to the territory they've got? Quite possibly. Uh, The Ukrainian counteroffensive that everyone heard so much about – is going slower than I think many people had hoped, of course, particularly the Ukrainians. Um, but, but it is happening. And, of course, Vladimir Putin faces these challenges at home with uh, uh, one direct challenge to his authority taken out of the picture, it seems, by which I'm referring to uh, Prigozhin, maybe the late Prigozhin at this is point. Is that what you're hearing? Because yes. we do have a general report, uh, or an American general report, that's either jail or dead. Yes. Uh, well... You know, the, uh, some people say it's from The Wire originally, but the old line, if you come at the king, you better not miss. Uh, Prigozhin, in the attempted uh, march on Moscow the other week, came at the king and he missed. Um, so the the claim that he was going to live out his days in Belarus uh, seemed implausible to me at any rate. The likelihood that he's uh, currently six feet underground seems rather high. We were just uh, talking to the territorial defense uh, minister over in Ukraine, and he was saying that it's not even clear to him that Vladimir Putin's in charge, that there could be a collective more in charge now. Have you heard that? Uh, it's possible. It's certainly one of the possibilities. Kremlinology is, is as tricky now as it ever was. Um, it, there's no doubt about the fact that Putin's personal power base has eroded. I mean, remember, Prigozhin came not from nowhere, but from pretty near nowhere. Um, and that's always going to be, was always going to be the fate of Vladimir Putin. He has made sure that there is not directly under him anyone who could challenge him. But the result is there's a very large number of people who could challenge him from a number of unpredictable directions. And uh, 
I've always said that the likelihood that Vladimir Putin would live out his days in retirement next to nil, he knows that. And he's doing what so many people in his position do, like the Kims in North Korea. Hold he's on riding now. the tiger. Yeah. He's riding the tiger because he knows that if he gets off, he gets eaten. Right. Uh, the Wagner Group, they, there is a report, has been virtually disarmed. They've willingly mm. give up. So that is bad for them and good for the Ukrainians. That, that's a formidable fighting force by reports. Also, they were creating havoc in Africa. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, it's been very, very interesting throughout this conflict to date, uh, the way in which we've learned really – two things particularly. One is that the conventional Russian military is in very, very bad shape. Many people thought that was the case before this war, but this war has demonstrated that. The second thing is, of course, is the fact that Vladimir Putin has had to rely on mercenary groups, uh, most famously the Wagner Group. And now there's a Gazprom group? Yes, absolutely. Now energy companies have their own militia, it seems. Um, and, of course, uh, the Chechnyans and others. Now, uh, th- this also is a great, great weakness for Putin. Uh, we, if you go back centuries in the history of warfare, you can even go back to Machiavelli when he writes on the history of on, he, he writes his own views on war. He writes about mercenary groups, that they are extremely dangerous for a prince, as he calls them, to have, because the mercenary group will not fight to the death in the way that somebody fighting for their homeland, for instance, will, or somebody fighting to defend their family will. A mercenary will flee before all of these others flee the battlefield. And that's been the case with the Wagner mercenaries. It's likely to be the case with many of the others, and it's one of the explanations for Vladimir Putin's disastrous performance in Ukraine. So for the president of the United States, the problem on the world stage is, number one, he clearly doesn't have the energy, not going to that meeting, not going to dinner with the NATO guys to make the relationships in in life seem to be the best. The ones on casually, you know, after the 18th hole, we're playing golf, uh, hanging out afterwards. But that's his choice. So listen to what they're saying on another channel that the problem with President Biden is his staff cut four. Yeah, I think his staff needs to own his age. I'm just going to be honest. I don't think they do a good job uh, helping out the president. And I'm not talking about it like I'm just saying if you are managing a president's schedule and you are managing a president getting on stage and getting off stage and doing getting on planes and getting off planes. And yes, he's 80. You need to be there for him and you need to make a pathway. And you sure as hell better make sure he doesn't fall on a sandbag. So he fell up the stairs twice, down the stairs once, on the stage again, off his bike, seen on the beach, wrestling with the chair mm-hmm. over the weekend. Is it a staffing problem? Wrestling with his jacket on yeah. other occasions. I mean, we've all had trouble with our jacket, but never the almost complete incapability to Ever get into it. Right. Um, it, it, what what uh, Mika was saying there is uh, the most generous interpretation, and of course, a lot of the Democrat media are doing that. You know, you know, poor <laughs> president, he's 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 eighty. What do you what do you expect? Uh, you know, we've got to help him out. Now, of course, plenty of people in their eighties are, are, are very able to do all sorts of things. Uh, but everybody can see that Biden is struggling physically, cognitively, and much else. He's he's not the person he was even four or six years ago. Um, but, but it's very interesting seeing the Democrats do this. You know, I was just uh, uh, the other day flicking back in my memory and remembering when Bob Dole ran for president. 
Do you remember that, that everybody at the time was saying there's no way that somebody of Bob Dole's age can become president? Who was he, 72? Bob Dole was like 74. Well, that's... You know? <laughs> and, I mean, now he'd be a spring chicken uh, in the Biden administration. But, but back then, you know, we thought that was... Now, OK, everyone's living longer than they were back then. But, but it's not clear that Joe Biden is an example of how you can keep going at full peak performance into your 80s. Yeah, no, I understand. So with the... Uh, with the spring offensive, the counter offensive right now with Ukraine, for American politics, they really have to make great progress this summer. Because uh, next yeah. year during election year, I, don't, I can't see the Republicans rallying around writing checks because that's where the Republican base is. Mm-hmm. Even though Nikki Haley is in support of the war, Mike Pence is mm-hmm. in support of the war, Chris Christie's in support of the war, uh, others kind of backing off, and there's a lot of senators and congressmen like Matt Gates don't really want to do it. Yes, I mean the Republicans have their own, as it were, squad who make a lot of of, of noise on the Republican side and do act as, a, as as some kind of counterweight, definitely within the party. Uh, I think it's a counterweight that can be exaggerated, but uh, most of the candidates, as you say, have have a, a, a unanimous view on the Ukraine issue. Yeah. I, I would say though that the, 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 the one thing that my sense American people when I travel around this country, have, is that they understand uh, the need to defend uh, Ukraine. They understand the need to uh, for countries to defend their, their borders, including this one. Uh, what I think is unpopular is the idea that the war would be in any way drawn out unnecessarily. And that's what, that's what I think the, the Ukrainians have to be aware of, that the timeline isn't just can we get everything that we want – maybe including Crimea, right. uh, it actually is, can we get most of what we want within a time frame that doesn't look like we're being greedy? Right. And uh, that's going to be the challenge. Right. I just, you could see the Russians fall apart. And the one thing that I think would be crazy but would probably be successful is if you figure out a way to get the Russians off the front line. And to do that, they'd have to mm-hmm. be worried about their capital. Are worried about their own city. As they were the other week. But, but I mean, here's the, the sort of unknowable on that, Brian, which is uh, what does it look like if Moscow falls apart? I mean, some people were gaming that out the other week when it looked possible that Wagner were going to actually make it to Moscow. And they, they, they didn't in the end pulled back because not enough of the conventional Russian military was joining them, which is what you need for a proper coup, of course. Um, a proper coup. A proper coup, <laughs> rather than a failed coup. Yeah. You never want to do a failed coup. I can't stress right. that enough. Again, if you're at home and thinking about a coup, not in America, but if it may be a small Caribbean island, yeah. you really should make sure. Don't miss. Yeah. Don't, Don't miss. miss. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what, what, what we saw the other week was a, a, a lot of people were very worried and understandably worried because, of course, Putin is a nightmare. But the history of Russia, like so many other countries, like Iran, say, shows that everything can always be worse. And in the case of Russia, you either get another strong man, could have been Prigozhin the other week, who's at least as as bloodthirsty. A really good caterer and a bloodthirsty killer. Yeah, a a good example. Of course, you say he was a caterer. uh, A good example, as a friend of mine said, of why you should never give uh, your cook an army. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Some, what could go wrong? Um, but <laughs> never give an army to a chef. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's also this, this thing of either you get somebody as bloodthirsty as Putin, a Bogosian-like figure, or the thing falls apart. Now, if the thing falls apart, that means effectively rival warlords. Well, that's not good in Libya. 
in the second most nuclear-armed country in the world. That's an absolute nightmare. I don't know if any country, including this one, has a game plan for what happens if the Russian nuclear arsenal uh, falls into the hands of multiple unknown actors. But there was a time... When you had Yeltsin, even though he was a drunk, you didn't really fear him. We always thought they were allies. He was a reasonable ally. Look back at all debates. They said Russia is not an enemy. And then Gorbachev, obviously, working with Reagan, goes to his funeral uh, by himself. There was hope that, okay, one guy's an alcoholic and one guy was an unpopular intellectual. Got it. Unpopular because of what happened to Russia when he took over. Mm -hmm. So I thought there might be a bullpen of those people. And many people looked at uh, Putin and thought, we have great hope for this guy. And obviously they were wrong, but he also changed. Uh, He did. And he certainly, I mean, a number of things happened over his decades of power. Uh, One of them, obviously, was he became um, more and more paranoid. And that especially seems to be visible during the COVID era, where he saw nobody for two years. Um, And I think you can certainly see some kind of deterioration in in his outlook. Yeah, our event. math scores dropped and he went crazy. Yeah. And remember, it's, it's during this period that he lays out in uh, long uh, work uh, his territorial ambitions, including the, the usurping of the Ukrainian territory, um, the integration of Ukraine into greater Russia. So he had been thinking about this and mulling on this for a very long time. Uh, you could say, well, what else could he do? Um, he would, had cemented his power at home all of these years, undisputed leader of Russia, stepped in and out of the presidency when he wasn't president, his prime minister when he wasn't prime minister. He was president, got around the constitution uh, that way. Uh, but he, he has been a, um, a force for stability in Russia. Uh, but, of course, he has also overseen uh, a state which is utterly, utterly failed in every way. Um, He has ensured that all of his critics uh, inside Russia and Russian critics outside Russia are bumped off in traditional KGB style. He's killed multiple people in uh, European cities, in in London, just to name one city. Uh, He's used WMD, remember, the the polonium and other devices he's used, uh, biological weapons are counted as weapons of mass destruction, capable of killing if they'd have got out wider, uh, up to 100,000 people. Um, he, he's been willing to do this sort of thing because he's always wanted to send the message, don't come at me. And it's, he, he's very impressive at, at, at terrifying his enemies mm-hmm. because he, he, he kills his enemies with, of course, absolutely no, um, no uh, quibbles. Uh, all of this at some point, though, is going to fall apart. I'm sure you've seen the documentary film of Alexander Navalny, Putin's palace. Like the- him in charge? Well, Navalny would be very interesting. Of course, he's currently rotting away in a Russian jail cell after his extraordinarily heroic but um, uh, currently uh, uh, inept yeah. attempt to return to Russia and challenge Putin. But I'm sure you remember that in, in Putin's palace, this vast, vast palace that Putin had built for himself on the Black Sea made Versailles look like a, right. a working shed. Uh, th- that was meant to be his retirement home. I bet that Vladimir Putin is not going to spend one day in retirement there. Gotcha. Uh, Douglas, don't move. Uh, a couple more minutes when we come back. What NATO said about China and why, what it, why it means so much. Also, a little bit about the FBI. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
it's not a relationship we should be in with Chinese communists or that some of our leading companies should be in. As you said in the opening, this goes back decades of failures of uh, trying to integrate our economy with China's. And you just saw the spectacle of the Secretary of Treasury going to China and kowtowing and saying that people like you and I are wrong when we say that we should decouple from China's economy so we could eliminate all the threats they pose to our safety and health and our prosperity. And that is Senator Tom Cotton echoing a little bit NATO had a joint statement really saying China should back off their aggressive nature. We've got a minute left, Douglas. Your thoughts about where we're at with China now? I think Senator Cotton's completely right. He's one of the wisest voices in the Senate. I Always think. has been. Yeah, absolutely. And and particularly on this issue. Look, it's 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 tricky. I mean, we're not in a Cold War situation with China. Um, we don't want to be in a Cold War situation with China, although we may be at some point in the future. The difference between the Cold War and now, of course, primarily is the fact that in the, the Cold War, there was no American financial interest in the Soviet Union. None. We did not have American companies and pension funds and much more reliant on the Soviet Union's infrastructure. I'm afraid today the unmeshing of our relationship with China makes this very, very tough, but that doesn't mean that it isn't desirable. We're still moving ahead, and they're moving ahead with different sanctions and limitations. Douglas Murray, thanks so much. Great pleasure. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. AI is kind of a fancy thing. It's First of all, it's two letters. It means artificial intelligence. But ultimately what it is, is it's about machine learning. And so the machine is taught. And part of the issue here is what information is going into the machine. So that's unbelievable that she's still doing this on every topic. In fact, here's another one. She was asked about transportation and uh, uh, what are they going to do about planes getting there on time and handicapped people who uh, have to use bathrooms and have wheelchairs. Listen to this. Uh, This issue of transportation is fundamentally about just making sure that people have the ability to get where they need to go. It's that basic. But we know the obstacles to that goal can be great. Unbelievable. Uh, Bobby Barack joins us now, uh, writes for OutKick, uh, covers a range of topics from politics to sports on down. Uh, Bobby, what's your take on the vice president they're trying to remake again, and when she gets off book, she just embarrasses herself? <laughs> yeah, she speaks to us like we're so uninformed and so uneducated that we come to her for knowledge on these topics like her her tone and her voice is so demeaning um i mean it's just so frustrating to hear her speak on any topic because of the way she conducts it uh I, not enough attention has been put on how bad she's been um we go back to 2020 when the democrats pretty much forced joe biden to anoint her as his vice president, and then we'll get into reasons why that is. But, I mean, we talk so much about Biden's failures, but when the book on him is written, maybe in a couple of years, if he loses in 2024, um, picking her as his running mate has to be near the top of his failures. I mean, it's been a disaster since day one. The border, her lack of visiting it um, is probably the height of it all. 
but every time she speaks and is tasked to do something, it's really been a disaster. But the other thing is, is that um, she's in charge of stuff. Doesn't really work that hard. Yeah. You have a situation yeah. where she's away almost every weekend. There's always nothing on her calendar. And, you know, this is a, the opportunity of a lifetime for a vice president, don't you think? Oh, yes. And uh, you talk with the border, hardly doing anything there. Um, the last time we saw her do an interview was when she was speaking about her vinyl records. I mean, you have rampant inflation, chaos at the border, uh, all these opportunities for her to capture. And she's speaking about her vinyl records, that she's a longtime fan. And we know Biden is incompetent. He's older. We don't know what his state is going forward. You would think someone like her would want to seize that opportunity and prove herself as a long-term political candidate. She has done the exact opposite. Like We talk about that escape plan if Democrats have to go in a different direction in 24. Nobody brings up the vice president. No one even considers her a viable candidate in 24 or beyond. And that falls straightly on how bad she's done. Yeah, I just don't know how he gets out of it. If, if there is no Joe Biden, I think the party's going to feel obligated to give her the nod or else they look like people that don't like women and don't like uh, women of color. And do you have Mr. Uh, white Guy, Gavin Newsom, thinking he's going to be president? Uh, the governor of Illinois thinks he's going to be president. So if, if he does yeah. step aside, there's nothing but problems for Democrats. We will see. The other big story yesterday, it looks like the guy that told us to fear AI the most, Elon Musk, who was there at the beginning, will now be launching his own AI company. What kind of factor do you think that'll be? Uh, I, I mean, AI is arguably the biggest story going forward. It's everywhere. Uh, I mean, there's so many different companies getting involved in it now, duping people, whether it be pictures or video or audio clips. Um, I mean, it's fascinating. It's also a bit concerning given what AI can do and what it does by taking away the human element of all this stuff. But yeah, I mean, when I see a headline that AI is moving into this industry or a new guy is getting involved and competing with current AI programming, and I take it very seriously because I think it's going to be not only the biggest story of, or one of the biggest stories in tech the next year, probably over the next five years, almost Every story from presidential campaigns to media reporting to uh, journalism now, AI has its fingerprints all over it. So we can't dismiss it, unfortunately. So you wrote a column uh, on OutKick about Twitter and threads. I yeah. think, you know, Elon Musk, man, what he accomplished in his life, and it's, it's already awesome. I think one of the best things he did for the country is buy Twitter for too much money in retrospect and then expose what they've been up to. And it's been revolutionary, and it's something in which we've already had a court ruling come down because of it. So you believe threads get started, and I think if it's successful, I think it could destroy Twitter. You don't think it's possible. Why? Yeah, I really don't because there's what I call the default rule, which is what Google is. Americans use the term Google as a verb now. They say let's Google that, go Google that answer. Well, that's actually not grammatically correct. Google's not a verb. 
but it's just instinctive to use Google. Nobody says, let's go Bing that, let's go Yahoo that. Similar, Netflix is the default streaming service. It might not be the best streaming service, but it's instinctive. Let's turn on Netflix. Is this streaming on Netflix? Netflix and chill is all over T-shirts and hats now. Nobody says, let's Paramount Plus and chill, or is, is this streaming on, uh, let's see, uh, there's so many, Apple TV Plus. Netflix is the default, and that's what Twitter is for that up-to-the-minute town hall of conversation. People ask other journalists, hey, can you retweet my story? How many retweets do I have? I think it's going to be hard for threads to replace that. Moreover, what made Twitter very effective culturally is that the culture war in a lot of ways escalated on Twitter. If you look at the people who were canceled, a lot of it was based on their tweet. Either they tweeted something wrong or somebody used their Twitter account to hurt them. Well, as we've seen so far, mostly liberals have migrated to threads. So if the left and right are segregated between Twitter and threads, less effective cancel culture and that movement will be because you want to be able to take the fight and complain. Like it's going to be a lot harder to say Dave Chappelle is a homophobe on threads if nobody on the other side's participating or paying attention. <laughs> so ultimately, I, I think Twitter will be just fine. I think threads will have some success. But look, conservatives have tried to try to derail Twitter 1.0 before. It didn't quite work. I know Zuckerberg has more money than Parler or Gab ever did. But ultimately, I think in a year from now, Twitter will be just as influential as it is today. Truth Social, not the major factor, did, did right. not grow like threads has grown. But the one thing is, is that Threads had the advantage of having the built-in infrastructure of Meta and Instagram. And I hear if you cancel Threads, decide it's not worth it, you have to cancel your Instagram account. You do. You do. And that was a very slick move by Zuckerberg to do that because now people sign up and they're stuck for it forever because they're most certainly not going to deactivate their Instagram. And you brought up an interesting point because I don't know how well Elon Musk has done as CEO of Twitter. I mean, I go on, it crashes all the time. It seems like it's not as well functioning as it was. But here's what matters. He exposed the inner workings of what big tech was doing via Twitter files. Yep. He, he provided evidence that the DNC was influencing censorship on Twitter. He, he revealed contact between the Biden administration and Twitter executives. He affirmed suspicions of shadow banning by showing conservative accounts like Charlie Kirk were banned from certain Twitter feeds. He was buried. So all the suspicions that were levied against big tech, Elon Musk confirmed and exposed. So that's his greatest accomplishment. Whether his Twitter is better now with the rate limits and the blue check mess, I don't know, and I don't really care. But what he did is he proved exactly what these tech overlords tried to do to the flow of conversation. So president overseas, uh, not having, you know, not any exit or entrance into any stage or press conference is something that doesn't make you hold your breath. Here's a little of his speech yesterday. Cut three. The first foreign visitor, first foreign visitor. Soon NATO will be the 32nd freestanding, have free, 30 free, 32 freestanding <laughs> members ceasing its attacks on its inhumane attacks 
on Russia. I mean, spy Russia on Ukraine. May God protect the freedoms of the, the, the protectors of freedom. So not good off book. Took a day to get ready for it. A little worrisome. Yeah. Um, Clay Travis, who I know you know well, is writing a book about how Joe Biden is the worst president of most of our lifetimes. I mean, it's really hard to disagree with that at this point. I mean, he's just done an awful job. I mean, when I, when I hear or see him speak, I really do think that he's why Saturday Night Live is no longer relevant because they could never compete with the real thing. He is a living parody of a president who is just incapable of doing the job, uh, whether he's overseas here, the things he says. And not only is he incompetent, Brian, on day one during his inauguration, he promised to lower the temperatures and bring the country back together. He hasn't done that, and he hasn't even attempted to. Every time he heads to a university, he claims that white supremacy is the most lethal and dangerous threat to the homeland. All that does is raise racial animosity and tensions, and it's a complete lie. I've written about it several times. There's no proof of that. So not only is he just in over his head, incompetent, failing cognitively, he's also doing the one thing he vowed never to do, and that is further divide the country. Yeah, there's no question. Uh, Bobby Brack, Outkick, uh, go to Outkick.com, read all his stuff. Appreciate it, Bobby. Thanks so much. Brian, appreciate it. All right, when we come back, John Kerry on Capitol Hill right now, uh, talking about his uh, climate agenda and how it flies in the face of America's true priorities, in my view, He's getting he's getting roasted right now by a Republican. We'll bring some of that back in a moment. Coming to you on a need to know basis, because, man, do you need to know? It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. In the past decade, as you know, uh, we've reduced emissions here in the United States, but in the same time frame, China's emissions have increased. The pollution that's coming out of China. Correct. That's exactly why we're working at what we're doing. And you said yourself, quote, earlier, this is a global universal issue, and we we don't want it to become captive to other issues. But I'm curious when you say that, if if you're ignoring these other issues like my colleague brought up here, human rights issues, would you agree that human rights issues are also global universal issues? Absolutely. But you you want to keep them separate when you're talking to China is what you said earlier. Is that true? What I said is there. Well, no, we don't we don't keep them separate in terms of our priorities. No, that's exactly I go what you there. Said. You said President and Xi go, and President Biden agreed at the outset to separate out the climate issue. Correct. So it wouldn't get caught up in these other issues. Correct. So are, are you were you correct? That doesn't mean you don't talk about them. Of course it does. And that's his whole point. And that was a congressman who I don't recognize, but I just want to get that back to you because he just uh, he was just on. And that congressman questioning John Kerry, who basically only reports to the president of the United States. You never get to see him, but he goes out there and does real damage and has all these promises to China and gives them all the courtesies they don't deserve. Meanwhile, they just hacked the Microsoft cloud. So and they just visited with Bill Gates and they just made Elon Musk pledge fealty to their ridiculous former government. So this is pretty significant uh, Q&A with uh, John Kerry, who I just would would go away, a terrible secretary of state, 
the whole foreign policy fell apart under Barack Obama, under him and his uh, leadership after he took over for Hillary Clinton, who might actually have been better. But that's what will be going on. This is all, this is testifying week. Tomorrow, I understand, we have uh, Jonathan Turley is going to be on Capitol Hill talking about uh, uh, important things as it relates to uh, Republicans trying to get get ahead of uh, all the stuff that's going on. Uh, meanwhile, the president of the United States has left Finley. is going to be heading home soon after going to the NATO summit. He's going to be running on the fact that he bulked up NATO when I believe he bulked up NATO simply because Russia foolhardily invaded a, NATO, uh, a na- neighboring nation that aspired to be in NATO, and Vladimir Putin's ambitions were stopped there, and they made sure of it. And... That united NATO. And now we're in a situation where they got to get through this summer and have their counter, uh, counteroffensive effective. But for President, uh, for President Biden, he's going to run on this. He's going to run on the economy. And you're going to make ultimately make the decision. For Congressman Mike Waltz, Green Beret, still in the National Guard for at least another week, he said this yesterday about the other NATO nations. We only have a handful who are actually doing what they're supposed to do and paying 2% of defense, cut six. Now's not the time uh, for membership. Number one, uh, that would that would trigger uh, the U.S. getting involved in this war and NATO getting involved in this war. And number two, more broadly, Neil, I'm not for any more NATO expansion until the current NATO members pay up. We only have nine out of 32 living up to their 2% commitment despite pledging to do so uh, a decade ago. I'm sick and tired of the American taxpayer subsidizing European defense with a war right on their doorstep so that they can keep handing out their social goodies. Uh, Enough is enough, and I think we need to toe the line. We need much stronger language from this administration, and we had it from President Trump, and they were starting to pay up. Yeah, they were, and that's just it. Sometimes you walk in a room and you create a bit of a fear, and and I guess people might say, I, I guess, tough to categorize. That's what China felt about the President Trump. No question. Works to our advantage. Nobody wants to deal with the crazy guy, even if he's received crazy, unpredictable. And then when it came to NATO, you watched the president erupt with uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, his, uh, his chief of staff, John Kelly right there, get all uncomfortable with Stoltenberg, say, listen, nobody's paying what they're supposed to be paying. They should be doing it or else maybe we shouldn't be members of NATO. And what you do is you don't actually leave NATO, but you make everyone think you might leave. And maybe they start rising up and making and making the payments like Poland does, like Sweden and Finland come in. And these are these are fine nations with great militaries. It's going to be a huge asset. But not every all those other Eastern European countries are overall as the president heads home. This is what this is how Rebecca Heinrichs a foreign policy expert, views the NATO summit, cut eight. I can see why Zelensky would be frustrated there. You have President Biden speaking about this is a defense of freedom itself in these Churchillian terms. And then on the other hand, you know, he's been very, very slow in delivering the kinds of weapons that Zelensky has asked for that are necessary to help Ukraine actually push Russia out of Ukraine. And so really, President Biden wants to have it both ways. He wants to say we're going to help Ukraine as long as it takes. He doesn't define what it takes is. Mm-hmm. He's no longer using terms like victory, like the Brits are. And so, um, you know, it's good. There was lots of good things that came out of the NATO summit. Um, but President Biden himself did not have a very good trip. And we'll see. He'll spin it differently, but then he'll disappear for a week or so. Listen, make sure you watch One Nation Saturday night at 8. Uh, of course, Fox and Friends every single day. And keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Show. You can watch anytime and download the podcast at any time. 
Brian Kilmeade Show, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, millions are doing it, and we appreciate it. Hope you have a great day. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.